welcome. Thank you for listening. We're currently working our way through the book of Joshua, celebrating the God who keeps every promise he has ever made. If you're in the Milwaukee area and you're looking for a church home, we'd love to meet you. You can connect with us more through our website, harvestcommunity.org. Continuing in our Joshua sermon series in chapter eight, if you're visiting this morning, we're going slowly uh, chapter by chapter through this book. Last week uh, was the defeat of the people of God at Ai, and this week is the conquest and the covenant renewal um, recorded for us in Joshua chapter eight. If you have your Bible, um, please turn to it. If you have a, a device that could have the Bible on it, um, I'd encourage you to open that as well. Joshua 8. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid or discouraged. Take all the troops with you and go attack Ai. Look, I have handed over to you the king of Ai, his people, his city and land. Treat Ai and its king as you did Jericho and its king except that you may plunder its spoil and livestock for yourselves, set an ambush behind the city. So Joshua and all the troops set out to attack Ai. Joshua selected 30,000 of his best soldiers and sent them out at night. He commanded them, pay attention, lie in ambush behind the city, not too far from it, and all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city When they come out against us as they did the first time, we will flee from them. They will come after us until we have drawn them away from the city, for they will say they are fleeing from us as before. While we are fleeing from them, you are to come out of your ambush and seize the city. The Lord your God will hand it over to you. After taking the city, set it on fire. Follow the Lord's command. See that you do as I have ordered you. So Joshua sent them out and they went to the ambush site and waited between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But he spent that night with the troops. Joshua started early the next morning and mobilized him them. Then he and the elders of Israel led the people up to Ai. All the troops who were with him went up and approached the city, arriving opposite Ai and camped to the north of it with a valley between them and the city. Now Joshua had taken about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. The troops were stationed in this way, the main camp to the north of the city and its rear guard to the west of the city. And that night Joshua went into the valley. When the king of Ai saw the Israelites, the men of the city hurried and went out early in the morning so that he and all his people could engage Israel in battle at a suitable place facing the Arabah. But he did not know there was an ambush waiting for him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten back by them and fled towards the wilderness. Then all the troops of Ai were summoned to pursue them and they pursued them. And they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel, leaving the city exposed while they pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, hold out the javelin in your hand toward Ai, for I will hand the city over to you. So Joshua held out his javelin toward it. When he held out his hand, the men in ambush rose quickly from their position. They ran, entered the city, captured it, and immediately set it on fire. The men of Ai turned and looked back, and smoke from the city was rising to the sky. They could not escape in any direction, and the troops who had fled to the wilderness now became the pursuers. When Joshua and all Israel saw that the men in ambush had captured the city and that smoke was rising from it, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. Then men in ambush came out of the city against them, 
And the men of Ai were trapped between the Israelite forces, some on one side and some on the other. They struck them down until no survivor or fugitive remained, but they captured the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing everyone living in Ai who had pursued them in the open country, and when every last one of them had fallen by the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the sword. The total of those who fell that day, both men and women, was 12,000, all the people of Ai. Joshua did not draw back his hand that was holding the javelin until all the inhabitants of Ai were completely destroyed. Israel plundered only the cattle and spoil of that city for themselves, according to the Lord's command that he had given Joshua. Joshua burned Ai and left it a permanent ruin, still desolate today. He hung the body of the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded that they take his body down from the tree. They threw it down at the entrance of the city gate and put a large pile of rocks over it, which still remains to this day. At that time, Joshua built an altar on Mount Ebal to the Lord, the God of Israel. Just as Moses, the Lord's servant, had commanded the Israelites, he built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool has been used. Then they offered burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings on it. There on the stones, Joshua copied the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the Israelites. All Israel, resident, alien, and citizen alike, with their elders, officers, and judges, stood on either side of the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, facing the Levitical priests who carried it. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim and half in front of Mount Ebal as Moses, the Lord's servant, had commanded earlier concerning the blessing to the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read aloud all the words of the law, the blessings as well as the curses, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read before the entire assembly of Israel, including the women, the dependents, and the resident aliens who lived among them. This is all of Joshua chapter 8, and this is the word of the Lord. Amen. I'm so excited. Can you hear me okay? I'm so excited that I'll be running in heaven. Man, this uh, trudging around like this can be a real burden, but praise God, you people that, uh, what's that? Praise God. Uh, Harvest Community Church is such a loving church that I got all these uh, canes, human canes that walk me up here. I always say my most ornate cane is my wife. Uh, by far the most ornate and she smiles all the time doesn't she it's amazing so we're looking at joshua again chapter eight he just read how uh this is a chapter of tremendous victory 
I didn't overemphasize. I'm going to emphasize something a little bit different today, but I, just to give a shout out to what's happening there. Tremendous victory. As you re recall in chapter seven, they had a horrible defeat. This is victory. They're told to take these people. They do things right. And they rout this army. They set up an ambush. The city is surrounded. Essentially, you could, I want you to read this story when you get home, but they're completely, completely routed. And then Joshua lures them up, either a bunch of, they make their, their people a decoy. And uh, AI's people run after, run after them. They burn the city. And then uh, Joshua's people turn around and start coming after the AI's people. And it's a t really, it's a total massacre. 12,000 people are wiped out. In chapter six of Joshua, it even says, don't even spare the children. I might attempt to answer that question. I'll give a, I'll give a real abbreviated reason as to why that's happened, because that's always stuck with me. Why would God do this? And some of you in the audience sometimes are thinking that. You're thinking, is God some kind of maniac? Is he some kind of genocidal Guy, what makes this different than what we're seeing in the Middle East or jihad? Why would God command the death of all these people? And I'm, I'm going to try to vaguely answer that. Uh, it would take hours and hours of debate, and it's pretty much a thing. But I think we got to cover it. You get it, what I'm trying to say? Um, and then eventually they consecrate themselves to God. I'm going to focus on consecration. And I'm going to focus on where we've been in Joshua. So we're discovering in this book, we are really discovering in this book that God is never off the job. He's, he's not kicking back in a cosmic uh, lounge chair. He's dwelling at the very center of Joshua's experience. You know, at times, every time they disobeyed, one of the take-homes is every time they disobey, they experience defeat. Every time they obey, they experience tremendous blessing. A spiritual prosperity ensues always when we obey God. Moreover, we come to the realization that this God, this God is not a blurry, hazy power. He's a personal God that enters into our life when we least expect it. He's a God that smashes the smithereens, all our little affiliations, all our little phony alliances. And we see this even as Achan eventually compromises with sin. God's in the business of destroying sin. He never makes a truce with it. Never. He's an eternal, infinite God who hates sin. Five words, five words for the most part, pretty much echo throughout this book and should permeate the life of the believer. Anyone want to take a stab at it? You don't have to if you don't want to, but, and I don't expect you to know it, so why am I even asking you, right? <laughs> There's five words, five words that are constantly showing up in the book of Joshua. And that's, I want to really um, emphasize that this is the core and circumference of this book because it's everywhere. Even as we get into chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, it's pretty much this little phrase. I will be with you. I will be with you. Listen to just a smattering of verses. Just listen to this because so often we feel uh, sometimes it feels like God has abandoned us. God has left us. But no, no, nothing could be further from the truth. We have a tendency to succumb to our emotions. And we think, you know, God is nowhere in this situation. God is never off the job. And I will be with you. In fact, Jesus Christ himself said, I will not only be with you, but I will be 
in you through the power of Holy, the Holy Spirit. So I want us to understand that this verse is a verse that could radically change our life. We have the, the, uh, the little thing here on, on baptism. Baptism isn't a work of man-made reformation. It's a supernatural act. It's regeneration. And so when we give our lives to Christ, God says he's going to be with us. He's going to be with us in every situation. Just listen to this verse, chapter, uh, chapter 1. I won't go into every reference. Just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. And every place that your soul to your foot touches, I will be with you. And then these verses, be strong and courageous. Fear not, fear not. So you're starting to develop. You're, we're starting to see what's developing here is there's a power and strength and a vitality to those that are tightly tethered to God. I will be with you. I'm going to keep emphasizing this because this is a truth that we tend to lose. We tend to think in, in our pride, we tend to challenge God and we think God isn't over a situation when we is, when he is. And you know what our pride does? It basically embezzles God of his sovereignty and his authority. And we then end up depositing it into our own account. We become God. We think, well, God's off the job here. He's not really doing anything. And this book is really emphasizing. Can you see it? I will be with you. It's everywhere in every single chapter. Here's just a few more. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. Do you think that these promises are 4,000 years removed from us? They're not. I'm going to illustrate what we do. Some of you thought maybe I didn't bring a prop, but I did. It's, it's, it's my calling card, so to speak. Here's what we do. If this diamond, if this diamond represents the multifaceted promises of God, see how beautiful that is. The tremendous promises of God. Let's just take the one that I'm emphasizing today because that's the one that almost seems to be attacked. You know, Christ said, I will never leave you as orphans. I will never leave you as an orphan. Isn't that a great tr truth? But the devil is always uh, attacking that truth. In fact, the devil is always scribbling these pop-up messages in our hearts and in our minds of defeat and despair, those pop-up messages are always happening. But the word of God, I will be with you. So think of the Bible or the, the promises of God that are in Scripture as this multifaceted diamond, and they're all for us. You get it? You get it so far? You want to know what we do so often as believers? And I get it. There's a lot of things pulling on us and stuff. I, I can give examples. I did the first service. I won't do it, do it this time because maybe I got a little too long-winded. But these promises of God, this is what we do many times as believers. These are the promises, remember. They're life-changing. They can be like life transfusions, blood, like a blood transfusion. They give us life and purpose and strength. Here's what we do. We don't want it. We don't want it. But you know what we cling to? We cling to the little velvet box. We cling to the uh, trinkets of the world. We like the way it feels. Hey, it looks really nice. It's very, very soft. And what we do is we jettison the promises of God. To carry the, the analogy a little further, we sometimes treat God, and it's obvious that's not a real diamond, but we treat the word of God as like costume jewelry. It doesn't have any real value to me. I kind of... 
I kind of subscribe to it. Some of us do that. And we treat these promises of God. I will be with you. And I want us just to understand one thing. God is with us in all our circumstances. But we treat these promises like they're idle, flat, listless little platitudes that don't apply. I think of, think of a cup of coffee, the frothy little bubbles. And then when those bubbles evaporate, that's how we treat the promises of God. I'm tired of it. At Harvest Community Church, we want to live fully and totally all out for God. Do you want to raise your hand if you want to do that? And let's help each other. Let's help each other do that. This is going to be a home, a home. But sometimes we've got to deal with some tough subjects. One of them is sin. Do you remember? Caleb said this last week, because we're talking about Joshua. We're talking about victory. We're talking about power. And the larger lesson here is when you disobey God, things don't go well. When you obey God, things start to happen. He said this, our victory in this world and over this world is sourced and sustained in Jesus Christ. That's kind of a... Uh, I might not have quoted it perfectly, but I think I got the gist of it. And that diamond signifies us just kind of trifling with the word of God. And I'm going to keep emphasizing it. Do you realize that God is with you in every single circumstance? Call to me and I will show you great and mighty things which you know not. I will be with you. And I'm going to tell you something. This appears more and more and more. It's like the momentum and the velocity of this picks up. You know, I remember reading a long time ago uh, about the third commandment. I think it's thou shalt not take the Lord thy God in vain, or maybe it's the second one. And I remember the author saying that what this really means is far more than just profanity. Thou shalt not take the Lord thy God in vain. It really means to live in such a way as if God doesn't exist. Or the flip side of it is, is live in the constant awareness of the greatness of God. So you understand what I'm trying to get around here? We, we basically take these promises of God. I was talking to Dave Beiswinger this day, and he said, we were talking about how theology sometimes can even take us away from God. We get so heady. We get so mixed up. This isn't truth separated from life. This is truth perfectly merged with life. So let's make it practical. Joshua, every time he experienced defeat, and it wasn't often, he was a great military genius. It's when his people flirted with sin. All new beginnings, that's the name of my talk. I don't know if you want to put it up there. All new beginnings, all new beginnings have their genesis in God, their origin in God. All the new beginnings we experience are in God, and the promises of God are meant to find their home, to find their home in us. That's where victory starts to occur. I will be with you. I'm just going to say to you right off the front, so often we treat these, these, these Bible verses as if they're isolated from us, right? We just do. You might be sitting in the audience today thinking, these promises are 4,000 years removed from me. You're slinking in your chair. You're kind of kicking back. I'm here to say this mail, it might not be directly to you. It was to Joshua, but the principle is to you. 
It's to you. You have the victory and the power and strength for life. No temptation has taken you such as common to man, but God will provide the escape. We have to fully and wholeheartedly believe in this. Now, in Joshua chapter 7, verse 2, and we'll get into chapter 8. Thanks for hanging with me. We saw, we saw that Achan was messing around with sin. He was throwing the diamond away. He was throwing the diamond away. He was clinging to this. You know, I kind of looked up what all that stuff was valued at, and it wasn't valued as much. He hid it underneath his tent, right? Thought he was getting away with something. How crazy. Here's what God says when we think we're getting away from something. Really, the two verses you walk away with today are, I will be with you, God will be with you. So Achan gets caught, and the scripture says, be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. I've talked to people that think, well, you know, they're involved in an illicit relationship, and I I have. Or they're involved in in infidelity, and they're kind of justifying it, and I have, I have. And I can see how sin is even changing their attitude. But they're convinced. They they don't think there's any residual to them cheating or doing something wrong. Sin always affects us. God never makes a truce with sin. So as we look at Achan's life, it's kind of an object lesson. The scripture says, if I regard iniquity within my heart, God will not hear me. Now, Caleb talked about how he was trying to find the word sin on his phone and whatever. And this happened to me. It's almost like it's been it's become such an obsolete topic that the word son, S-O-N, appears or son, S-U-N, appears. But the word sin, it's almost like your phone won't let you say sin because we've anesthetized ourselves to it or we're allergic to the concept. But until we deal with our sin, and that's what that cross is all about, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Why? So we might become the righteousness of God. Though he was rich, he became poor, that through his poverty, he might become rich. God wants to be with you. He said to Joshua, I will be with you. You guys are 4,000 years removed. You're not. He will be with you just like he was with Joshua. So I'm kind of doing a smattering of where this book has been. But But Achan started to dabble with sin. And you know what sin does to us? I'm just going to use another analogy. Sometimes we we dabble in sin with a, a, a degree of apprehension, like, well, maybe I shouldn't be doing this or whatever. But before you know it, the horror of it or the repulsiveness of it, we start rationalizing, justifying, and then this is what happens. We become a tourist. We become a tourist of doing this. And before you know it, we, we go down that road so far that now we become a full-fledged resident of hell. And I'm here to tell you, and the scripture does teach this. I don't know when it happens or how it happens. But you can expedite your journey to hell by compromising with God. A man who stiffens his neck after much reproof will be suddenly cut off, and that without remedy. Here at Harvest Community Church, we want to just build a home. My passage isn't dealing with a lot of uh, grace and love, and we can't say enough about that. I'm looking forward to it when I get a chance to talk on God's grace and mercy and love, because God's that, but God's also a God of justice. He's a God of righteousness. In fact, it says his throne is established by righteousness, not by mercy or love. 
It's by his righteousness. This is his eyes are so pure, he can't even look upon sin. Now, I'm not, I'm not insinuating anything, you guys. I'm just asking us to look deep in our lives as we consider following. Look what, look what Ankin did. And here's the deal. How often have you heard this? There's, there's a thing, uh, secret sin, that concept of secret sin. Are you kidding me? The sin might be inconspicuous to you and I, But do you really think it's escaping God's notion, who God is? Here's what it says in Jeremiah. And it actually says it, uh, Kevin was telling me this, but it says this in Jeremiah. <sighs> who can hide themselves in a secret place that I don't see them? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? Am I not a God? <laughs> who is far off and not a God who is nearby. God's omniscience, you think you're going undetected. There's no such thing as secret sin. And let's just, let's make it very applicable. We tend to think, and I understand there's degrees of sinfulness or depravity. I understand that. Uh, a child eating a cookie versus a guy like Hitler. I understand there's a difference there. But here's the deal. The sin of disobedience. Now, this is going to bring it back to Joshua. The sin of disobedience in chapter 7 got 36 men killed. It got 30. You read chapter 7. Those 36 men got, and, and Joshua and his men were already told that they were going to have victory if they did everything. But guess what happened? Self-sufficiency and doing things their own way got in the way. And it says in the chapter 7, that they only sent 3,000 men out. In chapter 8 that we're looking at, they sent 30,000 out. They weren't, see what I mean? If you contrast chapter 7, chapter 8, you can see all these different differences. In fact, it says, maybe you can put this slide up, uh, the New Beginnings one. Okay, yeah. Okay, that I'm thinking... Can we go back one slide? I think I got two of them. Just only two. Well, that's the power of consecrate. How about the power of new beginnings? Thanks for being paid. And then there should be a verse, one other verse that I wanted to share. Just leave that. That'll be fine. I'll just tell you what the verse said. Chat, you can look it up too. Chapter 7, verse 1. It's so many contrasts. It says that they took the accursed or they took the things that were devoted to God. They stole from the treasury of God. That's what they were really doing. And the Bible says that God's anger was burning towards Achan. It burned. And now here's the contrast. Here's the victory. But Joshua, he took care of, of that sin in the camp. And then it says, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid or discouraged. There it is again. There's another promise from God. There's that diamond that we throw away. God wants to give us peace. It says that he'll keep our minds in perfect peace, stayed upon him. So, so all of a sudden you're seeing these incredible things happen because uh, Joshua and his people are obeying. So sin is what caused this moral malfunction and defection in Achan's life. He thought he was getting away with something, and he wasn't. 
I'll just end on this section real quick. Just think of the other biblical characters that God struck down. He wasn't messing with them. He's not negotiating. I've seen people destroy their lives a lot, trifling with sin. Think of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. They were lying about their withholdings. They were struck dead. Remember Lot's wife? She was turned into a pillar of salt. God wasn't messing around. He's not messing. We think we we we, we have the weak view. We have an, an inverted view. Our calculus of sin is so off. We tend to always focus on the sin. I don't want to do this. I really what I what I really want to do is focus on the holiness and the majesty and the greatness of God. Then we'll be horrified by sin. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not trying to call people a bunch of sinners. The Bible already does that. There's something wrong. And then finally, there was Nadab and Abihu. They were the sons of Aaron, and they offered the wrong type of sacrifice that God decreed, and they were struck dead. They, the scripture says they offered wrong, the wrong type of fire or incense before God. They approached the right God in the wrong way. Don't compromise with God's word. I will be with you, God says. So let's put up the last slide on the power of consecration. Okay, before I read this, and we are going to go through these five verses. Do you guys know what consecration is? It's a great gift that we give back to God. The great apostle Paul said, I beseech you by the mercies of God. And I always point to the cross. The cross is the greatest expression of God's mercy and grace and love. It's also his verdict on sin. Sin will be punished. The Bible says the, sin, the soul that sins, it shall die. That, based on what he did, Paul said, present your bodies a living sacrifice. So as we look at this act of consecration, we need to consider what it is. And so when we consecrate ourselves, we're basically saying we don't want anything to contaminate or rupture our relationship with God. It involves everything. It involves the mind. It involves the will. It involves the affection. Your affection, I mean. So as we get ready to talk about this sec segment, ask yourself, have we consecrated have I truly consecrated my life to God the way that God has asked me to? And if you got something wrong in your life, you get it right today. You come forward. Let God work. Don't be tossing those promises. We take those promises and we actually throw them in the garage or we throw them in the attic of our own indifference. We just, we just play with it. Cling to what God says. I'm asking you tonight or today, if you're feeling prompted to consecrate yourself in a deeper walk with God, you need to consider that. Paul said to do this. The theme of consecration involves holiness and your willingness, your will, willing to get on God's program. I remember reading an article a long time ago called The, the Tragedy of Unceased Moment, where you're being prompted, you're being compelled to act. I need to come forward. I need to get strong. I need to repent of this. You just need to do something, whatever that is. But something holds us back, or we hesitate, or we just kind of meander around it. 
the moment is lost. The moment will never represent itself. So Joshua had this great, great uh, victory after a great, great defeat. And so he's getting the people right here in, the, in these next verses. He's saying, people, we need to consecrate. We need to go all out for God. We need to get it together. Let's understand that God is for us. Who can be against us? I will not leave you or forsake you. I am with you. Do you understand what I'm saying? That is our center. That is our center of gravity. He is with us. And he loves us. The scripture says he loves us with an everlasting love. We are more than conquerors in him that gave. So let's look at this, the, these five verses that deal with consecration. And you be thinking to yourself, what do I need to do? At that time, Joshua built an altar. And there's always altars going up in scripture as, as giving glory to God. I think... Uh, one is in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham. At that time, Joshua built an altar on Mount Ebal to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's, he's going to get everything right. He's looking hard at their lives. And he's actually reconsidering, how did we get so destroyed in chapter 7 and chapter 8? Now they have this great victory, and he wants to recalibrate the people. We need to do things right from now on. Just as Moses, the Lord's servant, had commanded the Israelites, he built it. He built it according to what was written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool has been used. I'm, don't change it, just keep it there. This is a very important part I forgot to emphasize in the first service. God said you're not going to use any kind of human instrumentality because you're not going to take any credit for anything. This is an ultimate sacrifice. You can take no credit, no human out, no, no amount of uh, spiritual calisthenics. You are not going to use any kind of instrument to cut these stones. You, it has nothing to do with self-sufficiency. And let me tell you, if you really want to understand this, because it's kind of hard to understand, look at Deuteronomy. There's your homework. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28, because it really emphasizes what they had to do. So here's Moses, or I mean, here's Joshua. He's making a, an altar of uncut stones, which no iron tool, and that's symbol with man making tools, it cannot be used. Then they offered burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings on it. Keep going. There on the stones, Joshua copied the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the Israelites. Stay right there. He's doing everything he's been asked to do. And as you read chapter 27, 28, you don't see any compromise. You don't see any negotiation. He wants all of the words that were written by Moses, which were given by God. You see, do you see that kind of singular devotion? Keep going. Verse 33. All the Israel, the residents, the aliens, the citizens alike, with their elders, officers, and judges, stood on the side of the Ark of the Lord's Covenant facing the Levitical priests who carried it. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim, 
Gerizim and half in the front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the Lord's servant, had commanded earlier concerning the blessings of the people of Israel. So what's going to happen here is he's got these tribes, the 12 tribes divided. There's a mount of cursing. There's a mount of blessing. And he's going to read all. You can read all these cursings and blessings in the book of Deuteronomy, or you can read them in Numbers, or you can or you can read them in even in Joshua. They appear. So God, he's got everyone separated. He says, are you guys on the program? Are you on the program? We got to get it together. We can never allow that def that defeat that we had in chapter seven. We cannot let that happen again because sin is so corrosive and destructive. It's like rust on a car. It just destroys everything. So he's getting his people strong. He's asking them, sanctify yourselves, be set apart. Why? Well, there's really many reasons, but I'm going to keep going back to my go-to, which is true, because I will be with you. I will be with you. Remember, it was when they turned their back on God that they felt abandoned. They abandoned God. God didn't abandon them. They invited their own destruction. We always invite our own disaster, our own destitution when, when we spit in God's face. I read a great quote by Benjamin Franklin. He said, he who spits in the wind spits in his own face. And that's what we do sometimes with God. You're just spitting in your own face. Let's look at the other 34 and one more. Afterwards, Joshua, here he is again, reading aloud all the words of the law, the blessings as well as the curses. You see, he's not omitting things that are unplatable or unpopular, just like we can't do that with Scripture. You see that? He's reading everything, the blessings and the curses. This is as sure as, as the law of gravity. He's reading all of it, the book of the law. And really what he did, just so you know, I, this comes out in the two chapters I told you to read and read it, Deuteronomy 27, 28. He was told to write the law of Moses on two huge rocks, the blessings and curse, and he was to whitewash it with some kind of plaster. Then they would write it. Some scholars think it was the Ten Commandments. Others think it's the Ten Commandments and many of the other laws. All I know is he was basically saying, this is where it stands. What side of the ledger are you going to stand on? Are you going to treat God's promises like the diamonds they are? You're going to treat it just like this. this. This is what this is all about. So he's saying, will you consecrate yourself? Eventually in chapter 24, he says, choose this day whom you will serve. There's always a consequence. I remember doing that talk on Elijah. How long are you going to waver between two opinions? There's always a cost. There's always a decision. So he said, according to all that is written in the book of law, he, he got it out there. Finally, verse 35. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded. This is everything that Joshua did not read before the entire assembly of Israel. So he didn't omit nothing, including the women and the dependents and the resident aliens who lived among them. So he <laughs> almost seems like an hour of decision, the old Billy Graham thing. It was an hour of decision for them. Are you going to go all out for God? He was recalibrating his people. Are you going to live fully for God? Are we going to live in those great promises, the multifaceted promises of God, that God's in control? Uh. 
So I'm going to go back. Why would God allow 12,000 people be wiped out? And I have to admit, sometimes even the answers don't seem to go far enough for me, but some of them make sense. I come up with my own one-on-one on my own. But I always say when I'm asked, why did God allow this? I always say it's predicated on a false premise. The real question is, why does God do anything for us? God doesn't owe us anything. He destroyed our people through the flood. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. You tell me, why does God owe us something? It says in Isaiah chapter 40, you're a bunch of uh, chirping little grasshoppers, shaking your fist at me, demanding a, an answer from me. God doesn't owe you nothing. You know what he says? He says, all the nations are like a drop in the bucket. If I were to take a drop of water and put it in that baptismal thing, you wouldn't even be able to determine. The water would assimilate perfectly. You wouldn't even determine. He's saying all these nations are like nothing. They're like a speck. They're, they're like a speck of dust on the scales. Do you think a scale can really measure a speck of dust? The speck would not influence it at all. And I'm telling you, I'm here to say right now, God owes us nothing. I know that gets people mad sometimes. He owes us nothing. He doesn't even owe us an explanation, but we think it's got to pass through our desk. God's got to pass our smelling test. I'll suffice it to say, I'll give two more examples. Uh, well, the Canaanites and the people there were very vile, and God gave them 400 years to, throughout the years to repent. That's just strong biblical history. He wanted these people to repent before they were annihilated. And I've, I've read things where people say God's guilty of war crimes. God's a cosmic terrorist. Richard Dawkins says God's a bloodthirsty. He's the guy that wrote the God delusion. He said God is a bloodthirsty, vindictive, ethnic cleanser. Sounds kind of fancy, but nothing could be further from the truth. You can really deflate these if you get to the bottom of history. And what happened is these people were so vile and so contaminated and so reprobated, but God gave them 400 years to repent. I don't have time to get into that, but there's Bible verses that even show it. He wanted them to repent. God is not willing any should perish, but all should come under repentance. But they wouldn't repent. The Canaanites became very reprobate. They became a cancer. And they were so, it was so night and day, and they became evil. They even offered their children to Moloch, which was the fire god. And I think of all the people, all the 80 million some babies that we've sacrificed. I'm never going to stop speaking the truth. I, I understand there's some... I don't want God's judgment. I think God's judgment's already fallen on us if we don't repent. But I know one thing, this fellowship, God's doing something. There's a renewal. There's power. Let's be completely yielded to him. Kind of gave you an abbreviated version. Oh, the last thing I was going to say is, I think the problem is we live under an overhang. This is my deal here now. Of ignorance. And no matter how much we try to crane our necks, it can get real agonizing. We're trying to see what God's doing in an effort to try to understand everything. That overhang is always over our heads. There's no way we can know anything. But I will say this much. God says this in his word. 
I'm thinking of it right now. It's in Isaiah. The secret things belong to God, but those things revealed to you belong to you, but the secret things belong to him. What right has the clay have to say to the potter? Hey, what are you doing? That's in Isaiah as well. My ways are not your ways, nor are my thoughts your thoughts. So we live under this overhang and we carry these little portable overhangs. And, we, and be, what does an overhang does? It, it, it obscures your vision to a point. So we have a kind of a faulty knowledge of what God is doing. Our knowledge of God is somewhat stilted. We have the word of God to give us wisdom. But these sometimes, these are, this is a thorny passage when it comes to the annihilation of a people group. But I'll tell you this, it wasn't genocidal because those people were offered a truce and you got to find that in scripture and it wasn't based on race and there's other things as well so anyways i'm going to end just emphasizing one thing i'm done god is with us i will be with you i will be with you god's closer to you than your own shadow and don't think of god as some kind of like magnification of yourself. He's so much greater and grander than that. Let me pray. Lord, we come before you. We recognize that <clears throat> you are the great I am. And we thank you that you are with us. You will not leave us comfortless or without a helper. You are the great God who sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. Help us to not live in secret sin or hidden sin cause us to just live fully for you you're the the bible says you're the living water you're the living water you're the only one that can slake our thirst i ask that you bless every single person here i thank you for every single person here bless them richly as they uh, live and walk in your grace thank you so much lord amen